I wonder if you've ever been in a situation where you feel like you don't belong. Uh, it happened to me last weekend. Uh, most of you know my son Lachlan's getting married to Rachel in a couple of weeks. Last Saturday was the hens party at our place. Uh, it was supposed to be in the backyard but it was raining and so uh, they had it inside. And the house was full of uh, 30 young ladies doing flower arranging, uh, drinking punch and champagne. There was uh, girly music, there was laughing and talking. Every space was full. And can I say, every space was full. And uh, I felt it was a wonderful afternoon. Everyone had a great time, but I just felt like I didn't belong. You know, uh, they had different interests, different ways of dressing, different ways of doing things to me, different ways of talking. So I went out and I went and hid in my office for a couple of hours. I just didn't feel like I belonged. Uh, maybe you felt like that, but at a much more fundamental level, at a more serious level. Uh, perhaps you're the only Christian surrounded by non-Christians. Maybe it's in your workplace. Uh, maybe it's among your friends. It may even be in your family, where the people around you think differently, with priorities that are different, perhaps morals that are different, but their whole orientation to life is different and you just wonder how you fit in. You wonder whether it's worth actually trying to be different, uh, whether trying to follow Jesus is just a waste of time and energy, wondering whether it wouldn't just be easier to, to blend back in and conform to what everyone else is doing. How do you live as God's person, someone who follows Jesus, in a world uh, that doesn't want to know about him, to a world where it feels like you don't belong? That's the question the letter of 1 Peter answers. Uh, written to Gentiles scattered all over what's now Turkey. Now that they're Christians, they're called to be very different from the sort of life that they used to lead. Uh, Hopefully you're at chapter 1, but just flip over to chapter 4 for a moment and have a look at verse 3. Verse 3 of chapter 4 says, describing the, uh, the people he's writing to, For you've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, detestable idolatry. They, the people you live among, think it strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation and they heap abuse on you. That was the daily reality for these new Christians. Uh, They're living a new way of life and it's just completely different from those around them and they feel like they don't belong. It's like they're from another country. It's like they're foreigners. And Peter's point, the big point in this letter is that's who you are. You are different. You are a foreigner. Flip back to chapter 2 verse 11 and this is maybe the key verse in the whole letter. Chapter 2 verse 11. It's lovely. Can I just say it's lovely to hear pages turning? That's great. It's uh, wonderful. Um, So chapter 2 verse 11 is maybe the key verse of the uh, the whole letter. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. That's his main point. You don't belong. So don't be surprised when you don't fit in. In fact, make the most of that difference. Claim it revel in it, embrace it, 
Live such good lives that you stand out even more. Live such distinctive lives that people notice. To the world, you're strangers, you're temporary residents, you're sojourners, you're campers, you're tourists. That's the way Peter addresses them at the start of the letter. Flip back over to chapter 1. Very good, I can hear it. You hear at least one page turning. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 1 says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to strangers in the world. Uh, That's the the word for for tourists, for for temporary visa holders. On the one hand, they don't belong. But that's okay, says Peter, because on the other hand, they do belong. They belong to God's people. This unrelated, spread out assortment of people in cities all over Turkey They may not fit in with their neighbours or their workmates or their families but they belong to God's people. They belong just as much as if they were Jews, as if they were national Israel. That's the other description that uh, Peter uses in verse 1. He says, to God's elect, to God's elect, chosen, special. It's actually an extraordinary thing to say because God's elect are the Jews. Not Gentiles, not non-Jews. Everybody knew that God's elect were the Jews. Right back from the time of Moses, back in Deuteronomy chapter 7, God said to Israel, For you're a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. See, it's Israel that's chosen and God's taken them out of the world. But now Peter's saying, Well, it's you guys as well. Uh, You're God's elect, just as much as Israel is. Uh, They may not fit into the world around them, but they fit right in with God's people because God's elected them. But that's not all. Wait, there's more. Uh, Peter continues describing their privileges. Verse 1, they're scattered throughout Pontus and all those other places that uh, you can't really pronounce. It doesn't sound like a privilege to be scattered, But the word's actually a technical term for how the Jews are described. Uh, The Jews were scattered after the Assyrian invasion, 700 BC, and they were called the diaspora. They were called the dispersion at each of the cities that they ended up in. Uh, Scattered all across the known world. And here Peter's saying that these Christians are the dispersion. Uh, God's people spread out across the whole world. But that's not all. Peter, verse 2, goes on to say, uh, he describes them using a whole collection of phrases that are heavy with meaning uh, to do with God's Old Testament people, the Jews. So firstly he says they're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. It's a similar idea to being elect. This idea of being known by God. It's not just about this head knowledge, it's actually about choice and relationship and commitment to. So when God says he knows someone, he means he's committed to them. All the way back when Israel was in slavery in Egypt, they cried out to God and Exodus 2.24 says, God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. So God looked at the Israelites and knew them. It's a weird thing if if all he means is he, he just sort of thought about them but he knew them 
uh, means he's committed to them in a relationship, a, a, a covenant relationship. And that same concern, that same commitment is what Peter's saying God is showing to these Gentiles. Uh, God is foreknowing them from all eternity. But that's not all, that's God the Father. Secondly, they've been sanctified by the Holy Spirit. That word sanctified, it's from the same word group as to be made holy, to be set apart. And Peter's thinking about what happened to these Christians when, uh, to these uh, people when they first became Christians. God's Spirit separated them from their old lives. We saw that description of, in chapter 4, didn't we, about all the things they used to do, but they don't do it anymore. And God's Spirit sanctified them. He, he pulled them out of that lifestyle and he set them apart for his purposes only. Uh, and that was Israel too. God called them to be separate and holy. Uh, Deuteronomy 7.6, God says to the Jews, Break down the altars and the idols, be separate and different, because you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 7.6. Uh, and these Gentile uh, readers of this letter, they're to be holy and sanctified as well by God's Spirit. Well, we've seen what God the Father has done for them. We've seen what God the Spirit's done. Notice too what the Son, God the Son, is doing for these Gentile readers. They've been chosen and sanctified. What for? For obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Seems like a funny way of describing what the Christian life's all about. But that's because they're categories and descriptions that are taken straight out of the Old Testament, describing what Israel is to do as well. If we jump back to Exodus 24, God has given the people the Ten Commandments, the people offer burnt offerings, uh, they present their bulls and they drain the blood first and then Moses takes this big bucket of blood and he sprinkles half of it on the altar and then he takes the Book of the Covenant, the Book of God's Law, and he reads it to the people and the people say, we'll obey everything the Lord has said. And then verse 8 we read, Moses took the rest of the blood and he sprinkled it on the people. And he said, this blood, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So God's Old Testament people, Israel, are called to obedience and then they're sprinkled with blood that makes them clean, that shows they're part of God's covenant. That's Israel, but Peter, well he's saying that these Gentiles have got all of that, this covenant, this relationship with God, but they've got something even better because they've got a new covenant. They've got obedience to Jesus. They've been sprinkled by his blood, blood that only needs to be offered once and that washes away sin for good and they get to obey the risen Lord Jesus who has conquered sin and death and brought them into a relationship with him. So we're only two verses in but Peter's described how God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit are including these Gentile Christians into God's people. They do belong no matter what they think. I wonder if that's a description that you recognise about yourself, that you fit, you belong to God's people. Uh, do you feel at home because of all these things? 
that are described for Christians? Well, if not, they can be yours. You can turn to God, you can trust him and let him do these things that Peter's describing here. He can set you apart from the world, he can wash you clean and make you his and present you able to obey the Lord Jesus in your life. That's what Peter's offering as well as describing. So back up in verse 3, as Peter thinks about this description about how um, his readers have been foreknown and set apart and sprinkled clean, it produces something in him. He, he can't help but praise God. So verse 3 he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. How incredible is God, says Peter. He's given us new birth. He's done that in the past. But he's also prepared something for the future for us. He's given us a living hope, a solid, evidence-affirmed, death-defying hope. Jesus' resurrection has powered that hope, something in the past, something in the future, a hope that's beyond this world. It's beyond what we understand now. It's, it's, It's past this life but it's also beyond this life in terms of what this life can deliver on. It's something richer and truer and more precious than anything this life can offer. He describes what this hope is like in verse 4. It's an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you. It's safe, it's secure. For you who through faith are shielded by God's power, That inheritance is our future. But notice too there in verse 5 there's a present part of what we've already received uh, or what God's given us. We've been given something in the past, new birth. We've got this inheritance in the future. But in the present, uh, Peter wants to praise God because at the moment God is shielding us by his power through faith. We're shielded. We, we lean on the reliability of God's character. We trust God promises and shields and that's how we make it to the end to, to receive the inheritance, to receive the hope, the, the goal of our hope. In a moment we'll see what it is that we're shielded from but just for the moment stop and think about this description of, of who we are. Past, present, future. We've received new birth in the past. We've been set aside, made holy for obedience in the past. At the moment we're shielded through faith, uh, all for the goal of this living hope of an inheritance in the future. Well, that's who we are. That's the description. Uh, Peter, like uh, all good pastors, then wants to give us the application. What's the so what? of that description. What difference does all that make? Well, look at verse 6. He says, In this you greatly rejoice. In this, as you think about all these things, you greatly rejoice. If you've just caught even a little of the vision of what he's describing, joy should be the result. The joy of knowing who you are and where you fit and how you belong the joy of knowing what God has done for you, that you're cleansed 
and set apart, the joy of knowing that you're protected in the present, the joy of knowing that you've got an inheritance to look forward to and salvation. But perhaps what is surprising in this passage is that the joy is to be despite present circumstances. The joy is to be uh, despite present circumstances. See there in verse 6? In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? Joy and grief. How can they go together? But somehow for the Christian, as you go through grief, it's possible to also rejoice. How is that possible? Well, as we read on, we find three reasons why it's possible for, for, for us to be joyful in the face of grief and trials. So firstly, verse 7, <clears throat> why can we be joyful? Because trials test whether our faith is genuine. Verse 7 says, These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. The image is of gold uh, that you dig out of the ground and it's got impurities all through it, but when you melt the gold down, when you apply heat to it, the impurities are burnt off or or maybe they float to the surface and and are skimmed off and the end result is pure, valuable gold. And the point is that's the way it works with our faith, which is even more valuable than gold. Uh, Trials purify faith. How does that work? Well, faith or the trust that we have is in all sorts of different things in our life. Uh, We come to a problem and we say, here's a shelf of all the things in my life and I'm going to trust this thing, that's going to help me get out of it. You've got an exam tomorrow and you think, all right, what what do I take off the shelf to help me with that exam? Okay, I'm going to trust my study or I'm going to trust the mercy of the examiner that I'm going to get a nice easy question because I haven't really done any work on it. Uh, Or you you come to to some other difficulty and and you grab something else off the shelf. We trust all sorts of things depending on what the problem is. It might be money, it might be our intellect, It might be our health, it might be our connections. Uh, But what trials do is it shows that all of those things are useless. Uh, They get burnt off, they're unreliable, but in comparison God is the only one who proves reliable. His is the only trust, it's only faith in him uh, that ends up uh, standing in the midst of those trials. And the end result is our faith ends up being more single-minded. All those other things have been burned off, burnt off because they've been found wanting. And when that happens, we get to the end of the trial and we're strong and unbroken and we're still trusting God. And all of that results, verse 7, in praise and glory and honour for Jesus. And that's the second reason we can rejoice uh, even though we grieve. Because at the end of it, Jesus receives praise and glory and honour. He's the one who's equipped us and saved us. He's the one we're obeying, whose eyes, uh, who's, uh, who our eyes are fixed on. He receives the praise. And there's a, a long-sightedness that helps us endure the present 
grieving as well. It's by looking beyond tomorrow that we receive joy. There's a perspective that allows us to be joyful. You can see that in verse 8. Though you haven't seen him, you love him. Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. There's a focus on a desire to see Jesus at the end, which means we're able to be joyful now. It's that end goal that gives us a joy in the midst of the trials. Jesus, the one who infinitely deserves it all, will one day receive all of our praise. It'll finally be appropriate for his wonder. It'll be fitting for his splendour and his beauty and his power. And then in verse 9 there's a third connected reason for how we can be joyful. Because we're receiving the goal of our faith, the salvation of our souls. Yes, our bodies might be enduring trials, but something of far greater value is our souls are receiving salvation. Our bodies are suffering in the present, but our souls are being saved in the future. So we might be grieving at our bodies, but we're rejoicing that our souls have a future salvation. Uh, Charles Simeon was the pastor of Trinity Church in Cambridge, England, for 54 years. Uh, You thought Peter Hastie was here for a long time, at 25 or something, but that's nothing. 54 years he endured and outlasted terrible persecution and prejudice and isolation and loneliness. He was single uh, for decades in that church. And that was actually from members of his church. (laughs) The church wardens locked the gates to the pews so people couldn't uh, sit down to hear him preach. Uh, They put the uh, service times on when there were lectures on in the university. So people had to skip lectures to come to church. And he put up with that sort of uh, persecution and hatred for 54 years. They hated that he was actually preaching the Bible and salvation by grace. But uh, 1831, he was 71, he'd been there 49 years and he was asked by a friend how he'd coped with all that suffering for so long. And he answered with these words, My dear brother, we must not mind a little suffering for Christ's sake. When I'm crawling through a hedge, if my head and shoulders are safely through, I can bear the pricking of my legs. Let us rejoice in the remembrance that our holy head, Jesus, has surmounted all his suffering and triumphed over death. Let us follow him patiently. We shall soon be partakers of his victory. Do you see how that's the same view of 1 Peter uh, that Peter's telling us here? He says, look through the suffering, look through the trials and see the joy that's set before you. That's how you can be joyful now. Even though there's this pain in your legs, your head and your shoulders are through, Jesus has made it through. Keep your eyes fixed on him. Catch a glimpse of Jesus. Keep trusting him in the midst of the thorns you may be experiencing at the moment. The struggles, separation from loved ones, chronic pain or illness, unemployment, the thorns of fear or failure or weakness, past mistakes... Keep trusting Jesus in the midst of the ridicule and persecution and the loneliness from those around you. God is shielding you 
by his power, through your faith, as you trust him. That's who you are. It's what you've been foreknown and chosen, elected for. Keep your eyes on Jesus, love him, long for him, let him fill you with an inexpressible and glorious joy. We don't belong in the world, but we do belong to him. Let's find our home in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us in the midst of difficult times to to be joyful, to recognise who we are and whose we are, to recognise what you've done for us in the past, what you're doing for us in the present and what you have promised to bring us in the future. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.